The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. Hello, I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Stephen Talty, whose book Agent Garbo, the brilliant eccentric secret agent who tricked Hitler and saved D-Day, has just been published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Stephen, this is a juicy, fascinating story, so I'm very happy that you've come into the Slate offices to talk with me about it. Thanks, it's great to be here, June. So the title of the book sets this agent up as the savior of D-Day, and we'll definitely get to that. But before the war, his life was pretty unspectacular, and he was kind of a disappointment. Tell us about Juan Pujol before he made himself into a master spy. Right. He was sort of a classic loser. I mean, he'd really attempted a wide range of things, failed in almost all of them. He grew up in Barcelona. His father was a self-made man, very successful. His mother was a, a strict Catholic and they really didn't understand their child. He said later that his imagination really ruled his brain, like sort of like an alien host, that whatever <laughs> he imagined, he had to set out to do. So he said that in one of his letters that he spent his whole boyhood covered in bandages because he would <laughs> he would be pretending to be a cowboy riding his tricycle and go straight through a plate glass window. This imagination was almost disabling to him, the way he describes it. So it didn't serve him well in you know normal life. He went to school. He was... He was restless. He didn't sort of appreciate his studies. He tried to get a job. He went to chicken school to become a chicken <laughs> farmer. And, you know, he was mildly successful at that. But he tried to own some cinemas. He loved Hollywood movies. You know, he loved Tom Mix, the classic uh, American cowboy. None of it worked. I, I just think that he didn't have a mind that was sort of tuned to normal life. He, yeah. he needed something extraordinary to do. And so one of the first extraordinary things that came along was the Spanish Civil War. He was incredibly conflicted about his allegiances. He grew up in Barcelona, which was a very red city, a very communist-dominated place. But he saw the dark side of that progressive movement. His father's factory was taken over by the workers, and he was sort of pressed into service into the army. And really what happened was he on the to, Republican side. To the Republican side, yes, um, which was very strong in Barcelona. And he did not want to kill a Spaniard in a cause that he did not believe in. He was a very strong believer in causes and fighting only for what you believed. And so he basically spent his war. Um, if you've seen the movie The Pianist, there are a lot of mm -hmm. sort of Hollywood moments in the story. And this is sort of the pianist moment. He spent his life in hiding during the mm. Spanish Civil War, at least during the early part. His girlfriend put him into an apartment. He couldn't really speak. He had to you know, keep the radio very low. He had to close the curtains. He lost weight. He appeared to be like 20 years older than he really was. How long did he spend like that? Uh, it was months and months. And finally, he escaped and he wanted to perhaps see if the nationalists were any better. So he crossed over to them and took his life in his own hands to do it. But then he found that their emerging fascist beliefs were, again, not suitable to him. And he basically went through the whole war without firing a shot, which was sort of an accomplishment for him right. because that's what he set out to do. At the end of the war, he was very conflicted. Um, he was living in Madrid. He just married. He had a young boy. He was managing a one-star hotel in Madrid. I mean, 
as far away from really being able to change the world as anyone in the world at that time. <laughs> but he saw Hitler and that he recognized as evil. And he took a really personal, visceral hatred of the man and he acted on it. It's an amazing story full of crazy leaps. You know, the thing that motivated this, it was kind of hard to see where it was coming from because he had chosen to even defect to the nationalist side who were fascist sympathizers. And then he is so driven by anti-Hitler feelings. Right. I think there were a few things going on. His father had definitely raised him to be a liberal um, respecter of mm. individual liberties and freedom of speech. He also, I think, wanted to impress his wife, Araceli. I mean, she was a beautiful, socially ambitious woman. And he felt that, you know, being a hotel manager in Madrid is just not going to do it. They wanted to get out of Spain. And he wanted, I think, to use this one extraordinary gift that he'd been given for some kind of service in the world. Right. And so those three or four motivations really combined for him to have this absolutely lunatic idea to go volunteer to be a double agent for the Allies. Well, exactly, because, you know, typically becoming a spy isn't a job that you can just walk into, especially in wartime. But he was absolutely determined. The Brits turned him down repeatedly, but he just kept on trying. How did he eventually go about landing a job as a double agent? Well, the Brits turned him down four times. He walked into the embassy in Madrid, and they basically laughed him out of the building. He had no skills. He had no training. He could barely speak English. <laughs> so he decided, first I have to go to the Germans, convince them I'm a fanatical Nazi, get them to trust me. And then I can go back to the British with some kind of pedigree, some kind of information, and say, I want to be a double agent for you. So that's what he did. And you have to remember that Madrid in 1941 was practically a, a German colony. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was dominated by the Nazi intelligence services, thousands of informers and sub-agents in that country. So it was a very dangerous thing what he did. Basically met with a spy runner named Federico, told him his story. The thing about Pujol, his gift really began to show up. He was one-on-one. -on -one, he was utterly charming. I really believe if you know he had been on Wall Street, Bernie Madoff <laughs> would have invested with him. He was yeah. just that good in person. And it was skepticism at first, but Federico eventually bought the story. He went to Lisbon to try to sort of get away out of the Axis countries and get to London. And this is really the Casablanca moment. He found a man who had a special diplomatic visa, yeah. which people would have killed for in those days to get out of Lisbon, to get to the free world. He snatched it out of the man's luggage, photographed it, put it back, and then went to different shops in Lisbon recreating this painstakingly. And he did very sort of intelligent things. Instead of ordering one copy of the visa, which would have been very suspicious, he said, I'm here from the Spanish embassy. I need 200 copies. Right. And just he had that innate sense of how to get to mm -hmm. people, you know, and mm -hmm. how to get them to do what he wanted. So he got this visa, went back to Lisbon, showed it to Federico, who nearly fell over because this was, you know, a highly sought after document. Right. And from then on in, he really had the trust of the, the Abwehr, the German intelligence service. You describe this in, in great, exciting detail in the book. But, you know, just to be clear for our listeners that... You know, this is a time when you don't just pull out your iPhone. I mean, getting a camera, you know, all the things he had to do just to get his hands on the passport uh, from the guy that he was, you know, in Xinhua with the, the, the casino with were amazing. He was both brave and also, as you say, incredibly smart and, and just a master of deception. Yeah, he was kind of an idiot savant of espionage. He just instinctively knew what to do. And you have to remember also that in Lisbon, it is like that movie Casablanca. Everybody's trying to get out of there. So he's one among thousands mm. trying to sell their souls to the Germans. 
and he and maybe a couple other people made it out. You know, yeah. it's, so it, it was tough competition, and he proved himself in Lisbon. And so he now Federico is a, actually a German, right? Federico is his code name. Uh, Federico is his code name. He was a German raised mostly in Spain. Okay, so he now has his contacts with the Germans, and. He starts to send, still as an independent operator, right? He starts to send information from England, even though he's not in England and he's never been to England at that point, right? Right. He's, you know, the, the visa is fake. He doesn't want to try to use it to get to England. So he goes back to Lisbon and pretends he's in England. Mm-hmm. And I kind of compare him to a rag and bone merchant scouring the streets of Lisbon. He just, any scrap of paper, any newsreel at a movie that he goes to yeah. see, he turns that in his mind into some kind of bulletin that he can send back. So he would see a flyer, a propaganda flyer from the Allies, and it might say something about an airplane. And suddenly he would give technical information, you know, what kind of bombs it could carry. And he was so convincing that later when MI5, the British intelligence agency, sent those early reports to their analysts, they said there's no way that this man was not in London when he was writing them. Um, Because he had such a grasp of what would be convincing and he had sort of like a spy novelist ability to put it all together that it was just it was like gold for them and yet he did make certain sort of cultural errors i love like that he he didn't really understand pound shillings and pence so when he would even send his expenses he always put them in shillings because he i guess he couldn't quite figure out the conversion to pounds and stuff like that or he would have dock workers craving gallons of red wine, wine yes <laughs> It's sort of hard to believe in this day, as you said, with Google, that right. they just couldn't Google and say, longshoremen in Liverpool drinking red wine, go shoot this man who just told <laughs> us this, you know? But they didn't have that kind of ability. Right. And um, he was always one one sort of phone call, one check of the sources away yeah. from being sent to a concentration camp. Right. Yeah, so he made these incredibly stupid cultural errors. But he just had brio and he carried them off somehow. And as you say, one of the problems, thank goodness, that the Germans had was in a way a lack of imagination. They were either unable or unwilling to to make that kind of imaginatively themselves. Yeah, there was a real cultural difference between the spy agencies. The British really cultivated eccentrics. They went Mm -hmm. to the universities. There's a great quote from Churchill when he's walking through one of these – facilities where all these intelligence guys are and he says to the guy who's guiding him he said i told you to turn every stone over to get these guys but i didn't think you'd take me literally (laughs) it was sort of like you know an arts commune you know working in the war so and someone compared the work there to a fresh riot of ideas every day that just would not have worked in germany they hired middle managers they hired people from old bavarian families they hired bureaucrats really so imagination was not valued and it really cost them that Garbo could not have survived in their system, but he flourished in the British system. And he did eventually find his way into the British system. And the, when they took him in, he joined an entire empire of deception. How did he finally make that connection? The most interesting thing I found is, well, he was basically smuggled into London when they, when they finally believed him. One of his reports that sort of coincided with uh, some information they had and they put two and two together Mm. and they realized that the Germans were buying everything this agent was saying. They were sending aircraft and ships to support an attack on these, you know, imaginary convoys. So they said, this man has power, let's bring him in. And the interesting thing is when they brought him in, they were debriefing him to make sure he wasn't a triple agent, to make sure that he wasn't really working for the Germans. All his stories checked out, all his messages were fine. 
But they said, what is your motivation? Why are you from a neutral country volunteering to work for us? And he told them this really moving story. His older brother, Joaquin, had left the country, gone to France on vacation, come upon a Gestapo massacre of innocents in you know French town, and then gone back to Spain and told Juan this story. And he was so horrified that he decided that moment he had to work from the Allies. And what I found out in my research was Joaquin had never been out of Spain. <laughs> he had just totally made that up on the spot because he didn't want MI5 to deny him his place in history. Mm. So, I mean, he not only fooled the Germans, but he's fooled the British. And then he did, yes, there was a, a system in place, the double-cross <laughs> system, where they had agents and they had these impossible schemes that were going on. Some of them worked. A lot of them really didn't. Mm. It was, there was a lot of growing pains in the war. And he sort of came in at the moment when they were starting to get their act together, when they were starting to implement this vision where all these double agents were going to send across this really alternative reality of the war, mm. this picture that they wanted the Germans to believe. They were going to be the point of the spear. They were going to broadcast this image. As you describe both the information that he was sending to them and also the information that they sent to him because they would kind of guide him as to what they wanted to know about, which revealed a lot about their needs and their plans. So it was as much as it was a way of feeding them false information, it was also this amazing insight into what the Germans were up to, right? Right. I mean, it was so dangerous for the Germans because their questionnaires to Garbo really provided a telescope into the mind of the German high command, what they wanted, where they were going next, because the spy agencies would know what was going to happen before the, you know, the field generals would, because they had to sort of prepare the ground. So it was really this rare window into Hitler's mind that uh, Garbo provided. And they used that. They always tried to goad them for more information, say, you know, if you need information on this area, and if the answer came back, no, if it was Norway, they would know that the Germans weren't thinking about Norway. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was really like an open channel into the German bureaucracy. And one of the things that his wife, Araceli, got very mad, she, as much as she didn't want to be in Madrid, she didn't enjoy London, partly because he was working so much and London was a very austere place at the time, rationing bombings. And she said to the Brits, you don't need him anymore. You know, he, he set this up. You've made him Agent Garbo, but couldn't they just have run his 27 imaginary agents and just done all this themselves? Was he really necessary after a certain point once he was completely kind of enmeshed in the British plan? Yeah, the British really found that he was necessary, that he was this um, strict arbiter of what Garbo sounded like because um, they would send him messages and he would scratch them out saying Garbo would not say this. It was very much like an actor or a writer protecting Mm -hmm. his character. And Araceli is really sort of the forgotten woman in this. In the beginning, she was just as important as Pujol. She took huge risks. You know, they were partners in crime. It was really the first project of their marriage Mm -hmm. to do the spy thing. And it's really the most tragic part of the story that the years in London really tore them apart because he was so obsessed with all these GIs and soldiers whose life were on his shoulders Mm -hmm. that he had no time to pay any attention to her. So, um, you know, he did pay a high price starting with his marriage for, for what he did. Well, we'll get to uh, his work in around D-Day in a minute. But first, let's pause to give away some books. 
But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You get to choose. Agent Garbo isn't available on Audible for the moment, at least, but three of Stephen's earlier books are... Escape from the Land of Snows, about the young Dalai Lama's flight to freedom, The Illustrious Dead, about Napoleon's battle against Russia and typhoid, and Empire of Blue Water, about the real pirates of the Caribbean, which is available in both abridged and unabridged versions. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of Stephen Talty's audiobooks or another title, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Word. Now, Houghton Mifflin has very kindly given us four copies of Agent Garbo to give away to listeners, and Stephen has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Garbo Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, August 24th. 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking to Stephen Talty, author of the new book, Agent Garbo. So, Stephen, we're at this kind of crucial period. We're getting toward D-Day, the invasion of Europe by the Allies. And that's the work that was his greatest triumph. But let's talk about how he and the team that he was working with managed it. What was the role of Garbo and the other agents when it came to this whole Allied invasion of Europe? What did they want to achieve? Well, they basically knew that they were going to have trouble disguising the the greatest invasion in human history. So how do you do that when... England and France are so close and and the channel is so narrow. So they had to sort of present an alternative reality to Hitler and the high command saying, what you're seeing, you're not really seeing. So what they did is they created this imaginary million-man army called FUSAG, which they said was going to come from Dover to Calais, which is, you know, 100-plus miles up the coast from the real target, which was Normandy. Mm. So they said it's going to be a two-pronged attack. There's going to be a faint, a fake attack at Normandy. And so those soldiers and tanks you see coming ashore are really a sham that you have to wait. I think that Americans think of D-Day ending on June 6th, but Mm. it didn't. In many ways, the crucial days were those right afterward when Germany would decide to pour its reserves that were being held in France, around Calais, in Belgium, and they were going to try to push the Allies back into the sea. So that was really uh, Garbo's role, to tell them that the attack in Normandy was fake, and you have to hold these reserves. If those reserves did come down, it would have been a different battle. It would have been a different war because mm-hmm. it would have been a much more formidable enemy. Uh, many more people would have died. And I think the battle would have been much more in doubt. So Carbo had to send messages saying this imaginary army is moving closer and closer. He would give insignia. He would tell them about campfires. All his, He had 27 sub-agents that were spotting all kinds of activity in the east of England. And um, they even had spotters, MI5 did, that would go to like hotels and restaurants and give Garbo little tidbits of information that would make this, you know, sort of local color would make it real. Yeah. 
And then they were planting rumors in places as far as ways like Jakarta or Rio de Janeiro. And there was this whole physical aspect to it as well. They had fake tanks, fake airstrips, fake oil depots that were all there uh, supporting Garbo's you know, imaginary story. That was the part that was most surprising to me. I mean, I, I mean, it makes perfect sense. They are so close. You know that it's possible, you know, the, the bombers were going over. They could see things. Just this entire physical job of making a small number of things look like a lot of things. You know, they pitched thousands of empty tents, right? Yeah, and they would have, you know, a very small crew going around and manning the campfires and, you know, blazing trails through the grass so that from above the Luftwaffe reconnaissance planes would see a huge army where there were probably maybe 300 men. <laughs> you know, this was just a British talent. They had this, it was almost like a theatrical talent yeah. to put on a show. And um, Garbo was the face of that. He was also a co-creator of it, but mm-hmm. his whole job was to sort of paint the picture for the German mind. And it must have been tricky to kind of keep the Germans believing in him. As you show in the book, there are lots of uh, times where it's established that the Germans really do trust him. But it must have been hard to maintain that when he couldn't give real information. But in 1943, for example, there was going to be a whole another year before this crucial time. How did he manage to keep them kind of content with him, believing in him? Well, they did give him real information. They did it in two ways. They gave him what they called chicken feed, which was very low-level um, not harmful military information that was 100% true. In the beginning, MI5 was giving him 100% true information. That was going straight to Berlin. It was going to Madrid, and some of it was being passed to Berlin. And this is called buildup in, in the spy game. And slowly that that ratios changed from you know 100% true and 0% false to maybe 50-50. Mm-hmm. But they also did things like in the invasion of North Africa, he was given the job of telling the Germans that it was coming. So days before, he wrote out a full letter documenting how all his sub-agents were convinced that the invasion was coming here at Casablanca, at Oman. And it was all completely true. That would have been worth hundreds of thousands of soldiers to, to Hitler if he had it in the week before the invasion. But what they did is he wrote the letter, they postmarked it, he was still sending letters back to Madrid, and they made sure it arrived two days late. So his spy runner, Federico, opens the letter, and he's holding in his hand something that could change the war. And he's just astonished, but it's two days too late. The invasion has already taken place. So that was a huge confidence builder in Garbo's abilities. And that was that really cemented his reputation among the Germans. Amazing. And then you talked about the amazing number of messages that he sent by wireless. Yes. You know, they the, the, had one operator who was basically kind of working his arm off just to send these constant messages with yeah. all of his information. You know, what's funny in the beginning is that um, people compared his style to Borges. It was It was magical realism. It was very sort of flowery and colorful and... He was doing that because he had so little information that he had to disguise it in this, you know, incredible Baroque language. But at the end, he was writing like Hemingway. It was who, what, when, where. Because he was the point man in this huge operation, he was giving them, you know, tons and tons of information, hours a night on the radio, just sending it across to Madrid. And a lot of it was heading right up to Berlin. Now, so what happened on D-Day? So on D-Day, he was given the honor of announcing the invasion. He was their top guy. He started to send the message saying that we have word of an invasion headed at Normandy, and there was no one on the other side. It was late at night, and the radio operator had taken off. So 
they didn't get the message across that night. But three nights later, it's probably the most important document of his whole career. This is when Hitler and his high command are deciding whether Normandy is real. And if it's real, they're going to send thousands of troops and panzers down from Calais and from Belgium and try to devastate those invading armies. And just as, as the decision is being reached, in fact, the decision had been reached. Some of those soldiers were already on the move and the panzers were rolling. And he sent a message saying, definitively, Normandy is a fake. Hold your men. And he stopped those panzers in their tracks and the men turned around and went back to their barracks. And that was really his piece de resistance. That's when he really affected the war in you know unmistakable terms. Yeah. So he stopped the counterattack in large part from those reserves. And Eisenhower on down really thought it was you know worth the division or more to to the invasion. And for all of his work during the war, he won both the Iron Cross from Germany and the MBE from the Brits. But after the war, he returned to a life of sort of mediocrity. Yeah, it's kind of sad in a way. Yeah. I'm, it's sad that he went back and he, again, went back into his routine of failing at different businesses. <laughs> yeah. He tried to, to open another cinema. He tried to open uh, a resort. He moved to uh, Venezuela with his wife. And everything he touched turned to dust again. But in writing the book, I sort of thought that, you know, so many people are Walter Mitty-type characters and they mm -hmm. dream of doing these things. But Garbo really met his historical moment. He had one gift. It was utterly useless in normal <laughs> life. But in the war, in this great drama to save Western civilization, it was what was needed. It was a cog that was necessary. So it was sad. The, the life he led afterward was very ordinary. But he was an ordinary man except yeah. in this one respect. So he went to Venezuela. He bought this huge farm. It failed. Uh, Aricelli sadly went back to Spain and took the children. And that's really one of the most inexplicable moments to me. He... Um, he faked his own death to get any Nazi mm. pursuers off the trail of him and his family. And he slowly lost touch with the uh, the family in Spain. And I went over to Madrid and we lived there for a year. And I met all his sons and daughters, there are three of them, and his grandchildren. And for three decades, they believed that Juan Pujol was dead. Yeah. And um, then he reemerged in 1984. You know, I guess the cliche about spies being able to compartmentalize their lives is really true. He was a very warm, giving person. His Venezuelan family, he remarried in Venezuela, had nothing but good things to say mm -hmm. about him as a father and as a husband. But he was able to sort of, I don't know, cauterize that memory of his other family, which mm -hmm. I find impossible to do. But um, he was able to achieve it. Yeah. So let's talk about when he, he returns from the dead, as far as a lot of people in Europe were concerned. They'd believed the story of him, of him passing away, um, of malaria in some part of Lucifer in Africa, yeah. right? And he was able to get his OBE when he went to, he went to Normandy and, at mm -hmm. the anniversary of D-Day, right? And he actually met some of the guys whose lives he'd saved, which sounds right. amazing. Yeah, he was um, he was kind of the holy grail for British spy writers, who historians, I should say. And this one guy, Nigel West, tracked him down to Venezuela. And um, this was around the 40th anniversary, 1984, and said, you know, you have to come back. You're the last hero of D-Day. And he agreed to do it. He went back to England, went back to Normandy, walked the beaches. Mm -hmm. And it was this one great moment um, that I found that he was, you know, he was mixing with a bunch of American airmen and, and soldiers they didn't know who he was. And um, one newsman said to one of the American soldiers, have you heard of Garbo? And the man said, yeah, I vaguely heard of him. He was a spy. He was involved in D-Day. And he saved many of our lives. And the newsman said, well, he's standing right next to you. 
So that, you know, there's no monument to Agent Carabo. There's no uh, plaque. Um, there's very little sort of written about him. But I think that was his reward. Yeah. He was really a humanist. To see these men with their wives and their daughters mm-hmm. and their grandchildren was very fulfilling to him. And he even um, sort of knelt down when he saw all the graves. I don't think he realized how many men died at D-Day. Mm-hmm. And um, the British spy historian Nigel West expected this to be a joyful day. And he found Pujol in tears. And he said, if I could have only done more, if I could have only saved more. You know, it was a glorious return, but he still had to face what D-Day really was. Yeah, it was fascinating, as is the book. That was Stephen Talty, whose new book, Agent Garbo, the brilliant eccentric secret agent who tricked Hitler and saved D-Day, is available in bookstores now. Thank you so much, Stephen. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Jim. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas. Oh,